Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Monday, August 23rd, 2021. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Joe, I think today that we're going to have a conversation. We are going to discuss the news of the world. We're going to pull facts and opinions from all corners of the known universe, i.e. Twitter, and we're going to evaluate these opinions in the light of our own independent research and analysis, but no matter where these ideas do come from, we're going to do our best to keep our discussion in good faith, and hopefully along the way, ourselves and our listeners will become adequately informed. And you know, we know that we aren't experts. It's it's also us who are only adequately informed. We are not the experts show. We don't know everything. We we uh, you know we try to look at things in good faith. We realize that ideas other than our own can be valid. Um, that other people's opinions, you know, of people who look at the same information come to different ideas. Um, you know that can be valid. Um, you know, not not uh not every tweet that you disagree with is is invalid. You know. It's really just Twitter. That's all we're talking about. It's all just Twitter. This is just Twitter in audio form. Um, and yet, I ran into a man at the store. I think this story is actually really important to share with our listeners. So I ran into this man at the grocery store today. He was attempting to get a cart. And he was yanking on the cart and yanking on the cart. And he could not get the cart free. So I walked over to him and noticed that the little kid's seatbelt from the cart he was trying to grab was caught in the metal grating of the cart behind it so i twisted that so it was removed and then the cart was popped free and again in terms of like understanding that other people's opinions are valid uh, i looked at him and i said yeah you know these things get tangled all the time and he says and they have these machines that push them together and you know <laughs> that that has not been my experience at kroger i don't really see cart pushing machines out and about but who's to say that his experience is not equally valid? I, I'm, I'm treating him in good faith. So you can take it from Twitter into the real world, too. Yeah, they got these great machines. They're called 17-year-old boys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but alas, you know, Evan demonstrates we are not on the ivory tower. We are not, <laughs> we are not looking down upon the populace with chagrin. Um, we are... Um, you know, we are we are alas lay people as well. So, Evan, let, let me say for the record, that is a true ass story. I'm not that good of an improviser. That really happened today. I I definitely believe because Evan, I know you probably would not have been able to improvise a story like that on your own. <laughs> um, there would have been a lot more ums in there. Yeah, yeah, and you're normally pretty um free. I edit this podcast. I know. Uh, <laughs> so, Evan, what's uh, besides carts? What's our first uh, topic for the day? So, I want to kind of go over the current state of the movie industry, specifically in terms of theatrical exhibition, because we've got a couple of things going on. We've got companies, media companies, continuing to release things on their streaming platforms at the same time that they open in theaters. And then we also have increasing hesitancy over the future of the coronavirus, which is making some distributors rethink certain theatrical release strategies. So I want to talk about what's going on and then kind of wiggle our way into a discussion of what it means for 
my favorite hobby moving forward. Yeah. So let's talk about Black Widow. Black Widow is the most recent Marvel film. It's the origin story for Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow character. I assume that she's some sort of Russian spy. It's like a spy film. Um, And it opened okay when it was released about a month ago in its first weekend. In its first weekend. Because it was released in Disney Plus and Premier Access for the first, during the same opening weekend as it was released into theaters. And so then this meant that there was essentially no barrier to anyone who wanted to see it in its opening weekend being able to see it. So then its second weekend cratered and it had the largest drop off from first weekend to second weekend revenue for any Marvel Studios film. And this led to a huge ripple effect across the industry because over the past 10 or so years, companies and stars alike have grown dependent on the large box office grosses of these superhero tentpole movies to remain financially valid. So the National Association of Theater Owners put out an official statement. That's the lobbying arm of big movie theater, you know, like AMC Mm -hmm. and, and whatnot. They put out a statement condemning marvel's move and disney's move to put black widow immediately on disney plus and they have a a pretty logical argument that not only is disney cannibalizing its ticket sales in theaters they're also cannibalizing the eventual money that they will make on the premium video on demand release that would that would theoretically come after the theatrical window before it gets shifted to home media so Black Widow, not doing well. Theaters are mad. And theaters are mad because, you know, they don't get that much money. They don't get that much of the gross from the movies that you see there. But people who are coming to watch Black Widow, they probably want some popcorn. They probably want some soda. Maybe if you got a fancy AMC like the one near me, you can get, like, some curly fries. That's a good movie snack. (laughs) And... (laughs) Evan, are you biased a little bit? I'm a little bit biased. Um, you know, I've I've had the chicken and waffles sandwich. It was good, but I felt like my teeth were going to melt out of my skull because of how sugary that waffle was. Um, for anyone who doesn't <laughs> know, Evan is a fiend for fries. So, oh yeah, that's why I was laughing at. <laughs> uh, yeah, we got to get my Joe laugh counter going because I think we're up to what like six now all time. Uh, Mm. Uh, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be stoic now, even more so. Damn it! This is it's my own fault. I I, I shouldn't have I shouldn't have spoken about it. Yeah. Anywho, so theater owners are pissed about Black Widow, but her uh, the 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 Black Widow herself, Scarlett Johansson, is also upset with Disney. Essentially, what what I've learned is that in the early part of the 2010s decade there became a strategy by which theater or not theater but film producers could keep the budgets of their film low by offering high percentage of the back-end profits to marketable stars so for example the original purge film features ethan hawk and he didn't accept much of a salary up front but when the movie took off he got something like you know 10% of the profits, which on a movie that did as well as the original Purge film did, amounts to quite a pretty penny. And so this became a lucrative way to do business for 
stars in modern Hollywood is to take a smaller upfront payment in exchange for profit participation on the back end. You essentially bet on yourself and on the movie that you're making. Right. And And so to make an analogy, that's not going to be clarifying for anyone, but it's almost like instead of being an just an employee of the film, you're also like an investor, like you're invested in Mm -hmm. seeing how it does, you know? Yes, you are providing your services at at a below market rate and investing the surplus value that you bring into the film, and then you will get to reap the rewards from the profit that comes later. Yeah, I'm glad you and I got to have our little smart time there. Oh, there's more (laughs) little smart time coming up here because we're getting into contract law in like 13 seconds. So yeah, the contract that Scarlett Johansson signed for... Uh, Black Widow was signed in 2017, mere months before Disney launched their Disney Plus service, or before Disney Plus was conceptualized, I guess. And in this contract, it stated that she would get a certain percentage of the profits as long as it was guaranteed a wide theatrical release. Now, this is industry standard. There's a certain number of screens that qualifies for a wide release, and it's never really been contested before. However, because back in 2017 when the contract was signed, there wasn't really this conceptualization of films opening on PVOD at the same time. There was no stipulation in the contract as to whether this would be an exclusive wide release or merely a wide release. So fast forward to 2021, Disney wants to make sure that their Disney Plus has this exclusive new content. And even though they did provide their contractually obligated wide release, they also at the same time, made it a non-exclusive wide release by launching it on Disney Plus at the same time. So, Scarlett Johansson is suing Disney for the lost revenue that she feels she is entitled to based on Disney changing their release strategy with Black Widow. And so this is where the contract law part comes into it, because some judge somewhere is going to have to sift through and determine what was meant in good faith by a wide release when the contract was signed. And so I don't know when that's going to end or what kind of precedent it's going to set. But uh, what do you think about this, Joe? You like you like a good contract. Oh, I love a good contract. I love a... No, contracts are weird. Um <laughs> You can sign a whole lot of contracts and, you know, be obligated to do or not do a whole lot of things that you wouldn't think would be legal. But um, I think it was interesting. I read some of those articles you sent my way about it. And and one thing that kind of, you know, came out in it was it was like the point that this contract was signed in 2017 and that if they were negotiating this contract today, they would know very well to make these certain stipulations about exactly what a wide release is, you know, the exact parameters with all these extra caveats of the different distribution methods of the films. And it almost just seems like her contract is caught within a transition of things where, you know, there was a paradigm shift within the movie industry 
and um, they didn't anticipate that with her contract. You know, it was a contract that was based on the old system and within between then and now the system changed. So she's caught out a little bit and but like that's still just like losing out on way more um, income you know, potential income from the film than was otherwise expected from it. Yeah, the value of her lawsuit is at $50 million, so quite a pretty penny. Well, and also just sometimes I forget how much money is in the movies. Like, you know, people complain (laughs) about movies, but man, what other art forms out there are, you know, having these many many millions of dollars poured into them um none that's why they're great yeah it's it's (laughs) truly a like modern masterpiece like um you know of of modernism or some shit like that but yeah it's just um it, it it just seems like she like all this stuff happened you know, she was there. She got on to the big movie franchise. That's a big cash cow. And then finally they were like, okay, we're going to do your individual movie where, you know, your character is the main character and the title character. And, you know, we're giving you this big break because you've just kind of been a side character in the other ones. And, and then, whoop, boop, ba-doo, she got caught with the bag and, you know, it, it it was the pandemic. Hers was the next one. They had to either. Well, I don't know if they had to, but, you know, Disney changed its distribution. So she's kind of the odd one out, mm-hmm. unfortunately, in all of this. Compared to other Marvel stars. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I know that there's been other Disney movies that have kind of released under the same strategy that haven't attracted the same amount of controversy. For example, people were speculating as to whether The Rock would sue for lost profits about that Jungle Cruise movie, which had the same release strategy. And The Rock was basically like, nah, I'm not going to fucking sue them. Come on. (laughs) That doesn't seem like within The Rock's brand. He's too busy uh, trying to hawk his energy drink, you know? Yeah, and he's, you know, he's being diplomatic. He might run for president. Like, he, you can't you can't be fucking with uh, Bob Iger or whoever. He has a very well-crafted yeah. brand. And yeah, he, as, he's, like, amiable guy. Amiable yeah. big guy. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, but what about these other movies? Yeah, so I know the Suicide Squad, not, sorry, not, which one is no, this? No, no, this one, this the one, Suicide Squad? This one this is The Suicide Squad. The Suicide Squad, okay. I know I this because I one. read the articles about it like an hour ago, so. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, no, I don't fucking care about this because I, I haven't seen it. I didn't see the first one of this, um, but it also underperformed at the box office, and so there's no real profit-sharing concern here other than theater owners are already really struggling. They've just had to kind of hold on and endure the worst period in history for being a theater. Yeah. And so to have these big ticket movies that they used to bank on to fill seats disappointing week after week is really harmful. But those are the movies that are in theaters. We're also seeing certain distributors, like I said earlier, I gave a preview. Oh, wow. Ooh. 
certain distributors are getting cold feet and are beginning to change their release strategies like we saw all of last year. So in the United Kingdom, David Lowry's The Green Knight was removed from the release slate. And in the United States, the <laughs> the live action release of Clifford the Big Red Dog has been, pu- <laughs> has been pushed back on the sketch. Heartbreaking, I know. We were, we're just all begging to for see it. That. Yeah. Um... And, but, but nonetheless, these could be sort of the first dominoes to fall, right? And if these distributors are starting to feel uncomfortable about the future of box office revenues in 2021, we could be in for a bad stretch run in terms of movie going like we saw pretty much all of last year. And Joe, why why are they nervous? What would stop people from wanting to go to a theater and sit in a room with strangers for two hours? Social anxiety? Or the coronavirus. Oh, yeah, that oh. whole thing. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, that's because, you know, it's it's not done yet. We uh, we got Delta. We have got lots of, lots of cases still. Delta it's Plus. no good. Delta Plus? Is that like Disney Plus's new competitor? Uh, yeah, you can, you can stream coronavirus from your home instead of getting yeah. it at the theater. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's it's so like it seems to be within this problem, or you know, within the movie industry, is that it remains the case that movie, but then also like TV um, production, just kind of generally remain generally incredibly profitable and can make a lot of money but what's changing is about what players and how many players and under what circumstances make their money so it's very clear that the big you know studios are still making money off of these films but is it going to be the case that the movie theaters are going to be able to make the same money off of these films like they used to. Mm -hmm. And is it going to be the case that big budget, you know, big ticket stars are going to be able to make the same type of money that they used to as well? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And the reason why I'm concerned about all of this is because, you know, call me, call me whatever you want. I'm a big believer in the theatrical experience of going to a movie theater and watching a movie on the biggest screen with the best sound and also just sort of the social license to become immersed in a movie i feel like watching stuff on my tv is fine but at a certain level it almost homogenizes everything that i watch into just this this kind of flat form of content and that is accelerated even on my phone but when i go to the movie i feel like i can actually get lost in this immersive artistic experience and the theater provides that for me i I think that especially during the pandemic but also these forces were in motion before the pandemic we're, we're kind of losing our sense of delineated physical space but i like to have that sense of delineated physical space i like there to be a giant air-conditioned building that'll sell me curly fries and let me watch the new m night Shyamalan movie i love that and, and it's like rude to look at your phone while you do it exactly and yeah i i feel bad if i look at my phone so then i have to watch the screen 
And, you know, maybe that, you know, it's, it's sad that we've come to that, but that's kind of where I'm at. Um, yeah. As I don't check my phone in the movies. I, I, if I, you know, if I go to the bathroom, maybe I'll, I'll check the time, but I am a good movie goer because I value the experience. And so what I'm nervous about is, is like Joe was saying, if this experience is no longer profitable for theater owners, the experience will go away. And this... Or at least the experience as we know it. Well, the theatrical experience, if there's no more theaters, then yeah, the theatrical experience goes well, away. Well, I was, you know, I, one thing I was thinking about is I wonder if it just ends up being that um, movies move more into that direction of the kind of luxury space. Where, you know, those kind of deluxe theaters where you can get food and, you know, the the theaters and all that big and all that kind of stuff. Um, I wonder if it would end up moving more in that direction, catering to, you know, the few people who really want the experience and are willing to shell out a little bit more. Whereas, you know, big crowds may not be as um, excited for it anymore. But. Sure. Yeah, we could see that. And I think what, what I lose there and what people who feel the same way that I do lose is the sense of variety, right? I can go to the AMC and have a lush reclining chair and a 64-ounce Coca-Cola, or I can go to the art theater that's near my house and I can watch a foreign documentary and feel like a big egghead. And... You know, then also I can go to like the studio movie grill and have like a full catered meal while I'm watching Cats, which I did. Um, <laughs> what was that movie about? Cats? <laughs> it's about these cats. And once a year, they do a mercy killing of one of the cats. And it's a big honor to get mercy killed. So they all have to sing a song and the best song gets to the cat gets to be mercy killed. Yeah, good deal. Is it? <laughs> I don't know. Um, all right. Yeah. Don't watch cats. That's not the, the takeaway here. But the point is I could see it in a theater uh-huh. and I could have a collective experience. And it's a friends. different experience than you would have somewhere else. As yeah. Well. And so all of this is to say, cause I was back going to the theater. I went and I saw a lot of stuff, but now just out of an abundance of caution, I'm cutting back my own, going out and doing things in public as much as I can. Yeah, and, and Evan's Mr. Moviegoer. I know. am. Oh, I would go every day if I could. And I did. When I did. when I was when I had movie pass and I was unemployed, I seriously went to the movies every day because it was free. <laughs> and I made the time for it. Um yeah. so I just I'm hopeful that we are able to get the pandemic under control. Because, you know, the, the the tragic loss of human life is definitely the most important thing here, but we're risking other social and cultural things as well. Yeah. And I'm hopeful that movie theaters will pull out of this and be okay. And I'm hoping that Scarlett Johansson's lawsuit is resolved equitably. And I hope that I reach a point where I feel comfortable enough to go and get some of those curly fries very, very soon. Yeah, this is, I don't know. This is like, I we're, we're talking about this and it's kind of weird because there is no like, what do we do about this bit? You know, 
just like, huh, things are going on and they're changing. Well, the what do we do about it is twofold. One, get vaccinated if you're not vaccinated. Please, please (laughs) do that. And number two is if you are like me and you value the theatrical experience, when you feel comfortable doing so, go go to the movies. Go there. Spend your money if you can afford it. And, uh, you know. Take a risk on something. Don't don't make the theaters depend solely on the tent poles. I saw Annette. It was crazy. There was a puppet baby. Um, Adam Driver performed musical kind of lingus. Like you just you're not going to get that experience watching the 14th Fast and Furious movie. Ooh, man. If they put that out at just after the ninth, that'd be crazy. <laughs> I, I'm uh, not keeping track of them. Um. Joe, any other um, thoughts on on this matter? Thank yeah, you for finally letting to... me talk about the movies. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> wait, put it on me. <laughs> I I I just kept telling Evan, no, no, no. You you can't talk about this. Um, but I think it's also interesting the kind of uh, dual release thing. I wanted to get into that a bit because it seemed like the National Association of Theater Owners, which the is the other also, NATO, yeah, yeah, the other NATO, not the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Um, it was funny that they were like making it seem like, um, that if there hadn't been the localized release, all those people like would have gone to the theater. When I think pretty squarely, that would not have been the case. But, sure, not not one to one, but I mean they're lobbyists. They're supposed to spin right. it in the and, most advantageous way possible for their yeah, clients. Yeah, and and I think more that there wasn't maybe an a you know a supposition that it wasn't warranted to do a release. You know, conditions had changed, but you know it just seems like you know in the COVID times. There have been a lot of decision. It, there's one point I want to make here. So this is just what I'm getting at. Um, that there's a lot of things that just kind of seem weird, but we do it because of weird incentives. Like, I'm sure Disney wanted to make as much money as possible. And I don't think they were intent upon screwing over Scarlett Johansson for a profit. But, you know, studios do have a history of doing that. Um, and actually, through. I know you're making a bigger point here, but I want to interject that Disney's response letter to the lawsuit was very condescending. And many people believe that it had sexist overtones, like saying, well, we paid you X amount of dollars up front, so you should like shut up and be happy with it. So there, there might be some level of malice here. But anyway. But there are also weird incentives where it's like, you know, the company wants to make money, but then... I think also probably at Disney, they probably would not have wanted to be made seem like you had to go and endanger yourself in order to go and see their newest movie. Like, I'm sure if they had gone along with just releasing the Black Widow theatrically, there would have been some pushback. Um, from, you know, a general public where it's like, hey, no, like, 
we're not comfortable going out yet and you're keeping this movie in this wholly unsafe place or a place that isn't totally safe, um, there would have been public pushback from that, I'm pretty sure. But, I mean, there's been other movies that have been theatrical exclusives around the same time that didn't receive that pushback so i'm uh, hmm. i'm trying to i'm trying to square this um because also like well, they could always just wait to get it mm-hmm. if they had done the pvod window like 45 days from now you know like i don't know but but here's where I, the, there's a point that i wanted to get to and i just haven't been able to find it in a, a space to do this in one of our podcasts so i'm going for it now Go like on. people talk a lot in the COVID context about like, why are restaurants open and why have schools been online only? Like if you ask anybody and you were to say, you know, between schools and restaurants and bars, what do you think should be open? And almost everybody would say schools because Mm -hmm. schools serve an inherently pro-social function Whereas restaurants and bars are, um, you know, this kind of nicety, you know, it's not necessary. Thank you for saying that about schools. I work in a school. Yeah, (laughs) I'm glad I could affirm that your work is pro-social. But the where it gets tricky is that. School is a quasi-mandatory thing and schools or or restaurants and bars are voluntary. So people get a little squeamish, you know, it's we would say it's more worth the risk to be exposed to COVID to go to school than to go to a restaurant. But since going to school is a quasi-mandatory thing from the state, We feel uncomfortable making people take on more risk for something that's mandatory, whereas restaurants are something that are optional. So if someone wants to decide to take on the risk, they, you know, we're more willing to let them do that. So I was just thinking about that, something within the movie context where maybe some of these studios thought like, hey, you know, this is like a wholly voluntary thing, but some people, you know, really enjoy our movies. So, like, we don't want to make it mandatory for someone to take on risk to be able to go and see it. But then at the same time, you know, it's still a voluntary thing. And it ends, you know, just these weird incentives create a distorted landscape from what we would otherwise design if we were starting from scratch. Yeah, no, that is a really good point. And I think it's taking place across this backdrop of a prolonged liminal time where we can't really agree if COVID is done or not, right? Like yeah. we still have, so I, I do work in a school and we're open in person, but there's a mask mandate for everyone, including vaccinated there is a social distancing requirement of three feet as opposed to six, and there's certain other protocols being taken, like contract contact tracing. I always call it contract tracing, but you know that that would be like a board lawyer sitting <laughs> at his meeting, tracing over the word. Now, so yeah, contact tracing. But then, yeah, like you can just walk into your local movie theater and 
it, it's just like whatever. Like the, the AMC that I'm referring to, they stopped even social distancing in their theaters. Like you can just sit right next to a whole ass stranger and that <laughs> makes me uncomfortable right now. <laughs> Not um, a half ass stranger. No, no, a whole ass stranger. Whole ass. So, but, yeah. Yeah, and and like around me, it it's almost like the pandemic has been over. Like... Maybe there is a somewhat limiting, you know, doing fewer social engagements or being a little bit more cautious. But that's maybe on like the five to 10 percent more cautious um, versus like a baseline versus, you know, during the height of the pandemic, which was like an 80 to 95 percent more cautious. Um, So it's just a different of scale, like. There are still cases around here, but it, especially if you're vaccinated, it's, it really just, things are just kind of going like they were. And so, yeah, just across the country and the world as a whole, the pandemic is at different stages. Well, let's, let's kind of hit on what you said of if you're vaccinated, because I feel like we've reached almost this dangerous point where we opened up stuff, but we're afraid to ask people if they're vaccinated or mandate vaccines. And so we kind of reopened for the vaccinated. And so if you're vaccinated, you're kind of going about your business. But if you're unvaccinated, you probably aren't that worried anyway. So we're in this weird spot where things are open and there's not really a difference in behavior between people who are vaccinated and unvaccinated, which is what's allowing Delta to continue to spread (laughs) is that the unvaccinated are still just doing fucking whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I said as a vaccinated person because I'm vaccinated and you know, I personally feel like that protects me, but Joe, I guess you, you can't say that you're violating your own HIPAA rights. <laughs> <laughs> I saw, I saw a picture on Twitter that, um, it was like a sign in a bar in Brooklyn. It's like HIPAA does not apply here. HIPAA is about your healthcare and we are the opposite of healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I violated my own HIPAA rights. You know, patient-patient confidentiality. <laughs> you can't say shit about your own health. I can't say shit. <laughs> I can sue myself. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're, we're just at a weird point. And it seems like the, like the movie industry was already like in a transition before the pandemic. And then it just seems like the pandemic just like made it even more topsy-turvy. Yeah, accelerated so. the whole timeline of these technological changes that were going to come sooner or later. Guess it's sooner. Sooner. Oklahoma. Anyway. Joe, what are you going to lead us into a discussion of today? Evan. Um, yeah. Hey. Um, remember how a couple weeks ago we talked about Afghanistan? Yes. I think it's time to talk about it again. All right. Um, yeah, so a lot happened this last week. Um, basically when we last talked about it, a series of events started to unfold in Afghanistan. Um, when we had originally talked about it, the kind of... Uh, 
you know, U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan was kind of going swimmingly. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot going on. Troops were leaving. We were vacating uh, bases. And, you know, it just seemed like it was going to a, you know, formal withdrawal and things were going to be done. And there was a potential for it to just kind of go out with out a bang, no, just a whimper. Not even that, just silently in the night. Um, a war over without much commotion, but AJR wouldn't have been happy about it, but everyone else would have been. Yeah. So, but uh, since then, commotion has happened, which I'm sure you've noticed if you've read any of the major news outlets or um, turned on the TV for five minutes. Yeah. 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 It has just been wall to wall. And what happened? What happened? So um, not long after our last podcast about this, um, you know, however many weeks ago, the Taliban um, started a surge, which, you know, again, for those who don't know, the Taliban is the insurgent, you know, former government in, I mean, hesitant to even call it a government. It was just an insurgency, Uh, you know, the rebels within Afghanistan and they started surging taking up lots of territory and you know uh taking over towns and just in the end you know there wasn't a whole lot of you know U.S. forces had largely left so U.S. forces weren't fighting them we weren't doing air attacks against them and the Afghan army even, you know, the Afghan Republic Army basically was not fighting them to a whole lot of degree. And this all came to a head where I believe last sun- Sunday, the Taliban made it into the capital of Afghanistan, Kabul. And by Monday, the previous the Afghan Republic that was supported by the United States fell their president, uh, President Ghani, had fled the country. Top military officials within the Afghan Republic had fled. And there became a chaos about evacuating the rest of the, um, you know, people who had helped with the United States, um, U.S. citizens, Um, people who had contracted with the United States and just a whole lot of people who had worked with the previous government who were scared that they were going to get retaliated against by the Taliban. And there were all these people still in Afghanistan and a whole lot of other people from other countries in Afghanistan who were, are, well, currently still worried for their safety. So they all made a mad rush to the Kabul International Airport where the uh, remaining U.S. troops had kind of guarded against the Taliban and have been evacuating people out of there. It has been a scene of, you know, it's been quite chaotic. Um, And there were even, you know, some heart-wrenching videos and images coming out of these planes just full of people. And people were so desperate to get out that some people even tried to cling onto the fuselage and the landing gear. And then just one just 
devastating video where the plane was taking off and somebody fell off of the plane and you just see a little black dot, you know, hurling towards the ground. People got desperate. It became chaotic as the Taliban overran the capital city. And that is all just horrifying, full stop. Um, Evan, do you have any experience seeing any of this stuff or anything you want to bring up? Um, no. Okay. So, this has brought about a lot of discussion along the what is sometimes referred to as the chattering classes, the the takes masters, the people, the talking heads on CNN. Um, and there have been a lot of people saying that the Biden administration bungled this exit from Afghanistan. And while things certainly aren't looking very pretty, I just... I want to go over some things because there have been some rebuffs. There has been a good amount of chaos going on in the, uh, you know, the exit and a lot of Afghans who are trying to get out of the country. But it wasn't inevitable that this was going to be the case. And I just kind of want to go over a few things. Um so one thing that people will constantly say is that, you know, in light of this exit, a lot of people have come to say, well, we didn't really need to exit. Um, look, there was 2,500 troops in the country and we had no deaths of U.S. soldiers in the last year and a half. Like, that seems like a pretty good deal, and it's only costing, I don't know, about $5 billion a year to maintain our presence. Why couldn't we have just stayed to make sure that the country stayed up? And the rebuke to that is that, well, the reason why there weren't any Afghan soldier deaths within the last year and a half was because there was a deal negotiated between the Taliban and the U.S. for the U.S. withdrawal. Um, it was basically the Taliban agreed to not kill U.S. soldiers, and in exchange, the U.S. would withdraw from Afghanistan. And we were coming up on the date when that was going to be done. So if we had overstayed and we didn't exit by the end of August, like we had said, the Taliban were going to start shooting at Americans again um, because there was going to be a surge. And they, you know, we would have reneged on an agreement that we made with them. So I think it's kind of bunk that if we, you know, had decided to stay instead that things would have kept along their peaceful way. But then there, there was another argument that came out and it's like, well, even if there were some deaths, we have military occupations within other countries, such as South Korea, Japan, and Germany. And we keep a lot of troops there to help keep stability. And we're spending a lot of money. And, you know, it, it may even seem kind of racist that we're kind of leaving this a country of brown people out when we keep all these troops in white countries to keep the stability. And 
I think that's a little bunk too, because in Germany and Japan and South Korea, there is not an insurgent government trying to take over. <laughs> like there are no rebels in Germany that the U S is fighting. Um, and those governments within those countries are not propped up solely by the United States, which was the case um, in the uh, in Afghanistan, which this just Afghanistan withdrawal has full on show the absolute failure of the U.S. policy within that country um, because the Afghan government fell after 11 days of a Taliban campaign to take it over. 11 days. We poured trillions of dollars into this country to try and, and you know, many of those billions were to training and equipping the local army. Now, there's a bit, and, you know, some people will come and be like, well, on the other side and be like, well, the Afghan army didn't even want to fight against them. Like, why should we have even fought for them? And I'm going to push back against that because it turns out that, you know, we've been learning since the collapse just how bad the situation was, how corrupt the um, government was within Afghanistan, not by some character flaw within the Afghan people, but just the incentives. And it turned out that nobody in the Afghan military was really getting paid and they didn't have a whole lot of support within itself. And so when you're not getting paid and, you know, the person above you is just taking all this money, you know, that would otherwise be going to pay, you're not going to be very willing to fight for it. And they've already fought for 20 years to keep this. And it was a big morale change. Um, so like, a f it, it's hard to believe that a standing army would, uh, you know, fight up against it. And the last thing I, I, you know, big point I want to make, you know, this hasn't been a whole lot of discussion, but it's just that like, some people would say, okay, it's fine that we're getting out, but the Biden administration could have done a better evacuation. And it it's hard to say with that because I these points I want to make is that the Biden administration put out a notice to all U.S. citizens in Afghanistan in May and June that they should probably leave the country, you know, because of the withdrawal of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. That notice was put out. And then as we got closer, it was assessed that the Afghani army would probably be able to fight at least for a few weeks or probably a couple months before the Taliban took over. But again, it only ended up taking 11 days for the Taliban to dispose of the Afghani government. So it ended up being a mad rush. And then it's like, well, what do we do in this circumstance? 
Well, I mean, I guess there could be some way where we send in a whole bunch of troops to go and suss out all the American citizens and get them out of there. But I don't, I just don't know. Is that what we do? Is that what we need to do in the scenario? And even if we had tried to evacuate before with protection from the military, was was uh, you know the U.S. government going to go around to all the U.S. citizens and try and evacuate them at gunpoint? You know, until the Taliban took over, the Afghanistan was still a you know just like a country like any other. You know, it was a little bit more closed off than some, but there are regular commercial flights in and out of the country. And life was at a normal level for what it had been. So I just don't know, given the circumstances of our withdrawal, if there was truly anything that could have been a whole lot different. It It's a tragedy that all of this is happening, but I feel like I'm more to blame the Taliban and the corruption and the, you know, the formal former U.S. officials who have run the corruption ring that was the Afghan Republic than, you know, the current administration fulfilling H, you know, uh, an agreement reached with the Taliban. So, so, yeah, I'm prepared to jump in here. I've got a line of thought that's more nuts and bolts, and then I've got sort of a bigger picture idea here, too. So... On the nuts and bolts end, Joe, I really do agree with most of what you're saying. I think that a lot of this was Biden finally playing the hand that has been dealt to all of his predecessors. And it it seems as though he was acting in good faith to do the best that he could. I think where I diverge a little bit comes in terms of the withdrawal, because while you're correct that... American citizens, by and large, could leave if they so chose in the the lead-up. There's a lot of people within Afghanistan who really can't leave without significant planning by the U.S. government that didn't take place. So I'm thinking specifically of foreign translators and other people who worked with the U.S. military who are Afghan citizens or Afghan citizens who are vulnerable now that the Taliban is in power. This is something that I spoke about when I was still competing in speech and debate, that the special immigrant visa process is an absolute nightmare. And, you know, my (laughs) my little speech wasn't enough to fix it. So it's still a nightmare. And I'm very concerned that there are people in that country who aren't U.S. citizens, but are nonetheless stakeholders in this conflict that the United States should have a vested interest in protecting that are going to be vulnerable. Yes, I, I agree with that. Um, while, yeah, it's, while the actual mechanics of the withdrawal is one thing, I we just need to be taking in so many more people from Afghanistan. Like, we went there and kind of fucked things up for a good long time. Or seemingly. And I feel like the least we could do is accept the people who want to come to the United States from that country. Yeah, people who helped us out or lost out because of U.S. action. Like I said, people who are now vulnerable, vulnerable because of our action, we should be protecting them. 
Right. Yeah, we definitely should be. We should be accepting more people. Um, I think the administration, like until now, is saying like 2,000 people from Afghanistan, which is just not, not enough. enough. Yeah. <laughs> like not at all. But it's just, I've seen the commentary on it and it, it, it just almost seems like the Biden administration is now treating immigration like a new third rail in politics where they don't want to touch it and trying to tiptoe around possible Trump demagoguery or, mm. you know, but because, you know, you saw it on like the Fox News talking heads, they, you know, it was they immediately weren't criticizing the withdrawal. They were criticizing the possible intake of Afghan refugees, like just immediately went to that. So I don't I you know, this is one of those things where it's almost like politics of it be damned. We need to bring these people in like we yeah. need to, you know, and again, when I say, you know, some people will take me saying bring these people in. And it's like, well, do you mean just, you know, taking busloads at a time without any verification and letting them run free? No, the refugee process is a difficult one. You got to verify all these things, but we shouldn't have a cap on how many Afghan refugees we should take who have credible cases. Mm -hmm. We should take everybody who has a credible case. Yes. So bigger picture stuff. And I am hoping that we're going to be able to have uh, someone on the show who is a combat veteran in the near future to give us a more insider perspective on this because i think that's valuable but for now you guys are stuck with me and joe so here's, yeah. here's my take i understand the frustration that th that is emanating here to feel like everything that we've done in afghanistan and in the middle east is being erased right to see it fall in 11 days i'm sure has to be tragic and heartbreaking what i'm interested in is sort of the counterfactual sort of what could we have done differently that that, that would have made a difference and or where do we go now while well, still honoring the sacrifice of those people who were there and yeah. who gave a lot to attempt to bring stability to the region yeah, we, we have to reconcile the the actions that were taken and also the reality of the situation now. And that's where I think the real difficulty lies. Right. Well, I, I just want to say that the way things went down was not the inevitable outcome from when we invaded in 2001. Sure, sure. Like, this is not just some logical conclusion of what happens when you go and do an, you know, invade Afghanistan. This is not just what was going to happen the whole time. Like from what my understanding is, is that we went into the war in Afghanistan after nine 11 to take over and fight Al Qaeda, which was based in it. And the Taliban was harboring them. 
Well, we got into Afghanistan. We took on the Taliban. We took on Al-Qaeda. And, but just also in a weird series of events, the Taliban, like the Taliban even wasn't a natural uproot in Afghanistan by itself. It was propped up by Pakistan to try and help create a more favorable government in its, you know, in, in its neighbor. So Pakistan was propping up the Taliban and the U.S. was like, hey, um, stop propping up the Taliban. And Pakistan was like, no. And then the United States under George Bush's regime was like, hey, what if we give you a whole lot of money, Pakistan, to stop funding the Taliban? And we just ended up in a situation where we were giving money to Pakistan and they were still funding the Taliban. But then we also got into this weird scenario where also in Afghanistan, the Afghanistan is a mountainous region that doesn't have a ton of arable land and, you know, it, not everything grows there. It, it's not the big breadbasket of the world. But one thing that grows better there than anything else is poppy. And, you know, some of us will know poppy from poppy seed bagels. But there is also the other thing that they're used to make, which opiates. is heroin. Yeah. Yeah. Opiates. And the United States had a very tough time dealing with that. Like there were times where they would go in and burn these poppy fields because they were almost certainly going to be used to make heroin. But then you burn down somebody's poppy field. Then those people in that family go and join the Taliban. Okay, so let's do this again. Let's not burn down the poppy field. Well, what happens when you don't burn down the poppy field is that the, the farmers sell it to the Taliban, giving them funds. So it just, it, just this crazy no-win situation mm -hmm. within this specific arena that affected so many things like just the occupation was just so crazy mm -hmm. just just so many toughens but so anyway after we invaded afghanistan after we took on al-qaeda and the taliban there was a window of opportunity for us to get out of there because, you know, that was kind of our mission was to take on Al-Qaeda, who did 9-11. Well, the goals shifted. The Bush administration decided they were going to do a nation-building exercise in Afghanistan, or at least partially, taking on as many commitments as possible, while at the same time taking military resources away from Afghanistan to launch a new war in Iraq. So Afghanistan, we were just never able to get every single goal we wanted because no, we weren't, I mean, early on, we weren't willing to put in the resources, but then later, you know, it's just because we made such lofty goals and that we didn't really have the means to do. Like, the military, U.S. military is 
very effective at combat. But nation building is a more of a mixed story. I mean, we're good at doing combat missions. That's what the military is good at. It's not necessarily good at propping up a government. Um, It's just something that may be a little bit beyond its capability uh, or the scope of what the military can do. So, and, you know, people will be saying, oh, we've lost credibility. We just don't win anymore. I mean, there is a very good article by uh, Noah Smith on his Substack. It's just that we hold U.S. military victories against a candle that, or a standard that is very high, which is the U.S. victories at the end of World War II, where we won over Germany and Japan, and I guess also Italy, but, you know, that's not as off-talked about. And we won in such a totalizing way. You know, they we squashed their governments, we propped up new ones, became allies of our countries, And there was essentially no resistance. But that was also because during that war, we so much got destroyed that there wasn't really anyone to resist. And those countries, their governments were, you know, made from within, weren't just propped up by the military. We were there helping provide protection and stability, but... The, the governments were of their own accord as well. I mean, the U.S. wrote the Japanese Constitution, but they could have rejected it after a while. So it's it's we held we we hold military victory for the United States at such a high bar as just complete totalizing victory where we were victorious in squashing al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. We were victorious in getting Osama bin Laden, the orchestrator of 9-11. And we were also victorious in ousting the Taliban originally as the ruling party. But, you know, if you keep on adding more qualifiers to what needed to constitute a victory in Afghanistan, it's just maybe that is quite outside the scope of what the military could achieve. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So while what has been happening in Afghanistan has been quite hard to see, it just, it's really just enlightening the failure of leaders from the United States for the last 20 years mm-hmm. it's it's just it's just bad like hell the the afghan forces <laughs> were less able to fight the taliban in 2021 than they were in 2001 like geez it's just and it's not like I'm trying to take any sort of glee in the situation being bad there or like some gotcha, but it's just a bad situation. And the last week has really brought, you know, how bad things really were there to the forefront. 
Mm-hmm. But the Taliban is running the country now. Um, and we'll see how that plays out. They're trying to play nice with the Western world or the rest of the world, I guess, for right now. But who knows if that'll actually stick. Yeah. It's it's just it, it's just a grim situation right now that just just grim all around. Yeah, even though there have been gains made in the past two decades in terms of mainly human rights progression in Afghanistan, there are definitely watchdog organizations who are worried about backslide at this point with the yeah. Taliban being in control. Yeah. Yeah, while it was still rough, it, it still can get rougher, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it ain't great, but, you know, like like Joe's been saying, they're really, <laughs> every scenario ain't great, and this is yeah. the one we got. U.S. occupation of the country ain't great. Uh, the Taliban taking over, I mean, there could have been maybe some alternate world where, um, you know, we could have created an Afghan government that could have stayed, stood by itself, but that just doesn't seem to have been the case. Um, and shit, you know, I was listening to some uh, a Chris Hayes podcast where um, there was a reporter who was stationed in Afghanistan for years. Or no, I think it was a, like a CIA, somebody in the Pentagon who had been working there kind of as a mid-level person. And they were saying that like, you know, uh, during the Obama years, especially, they just tried to make sure that everything was as quiet as possible. And there was kind of this callous calculation that it like, yeah, you wanted to get out of the war, but the political consequences was of that was so much greater than just continuing the policy. Mm-hmm. And it actually came out recently that a top military official under Trump, who was aware of, you know, this whole withdrawal was negotiated by the Trump administration. And um, it was, and this military official who has come forward, I, I feel bad that I don't have their name, but was basically like, yeah, Trump was planning on reneging on this, like make this agreement to make it seem like he's getting out of the Middle East for the election and then was just not going to leave. Oh, wow. I hadn't heard that. So it may not be true. It may be hearsay. It may be slander, but that was something I saw. So I'm trying to couch that as much as possible. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, But it's just, the political costs of getting out were high. The costs of staying in were low, generally. And it just, it, it almost, now it seems almost by accident of circumstance that we're getting out, which I think is good. But it, yeah, it's still just been way more chaotic than you would have hoped. Yeah. So... My thoughts are with uh, the people trying to get out of there. I hope we take as many full plane loads of Afghan people wanting to come to our country. 
Um, if they're wanting to come and be part of our country after we occupied their country for 20 years, I, I think that I think they'll be good Americans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so Evan, do you have anything else you want to say on this? Uh, no, no. I, um, you know, I, I gave my thoughts as I saw them this, uh, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm out of the takes loop these, these yeah. days. Yeah. but uh but but you're doing great you know teach, oh. teach, teaching everybody yeah it's a it's a tough situation and i know mine my viewpoint isn't the only one that matters and other people can look at it from different points and have different conclusions but that's how i'm seeing it at least so yeah, yeah. be a little end on a downer note again <laughs> we're good at that yeah, well, you know, look around. Yeah. It's sunny. It's really fucking hot. It's 91 degrees in Indianapolis. Oh, man, that is brutal. Yep. It and cooled down to... today. It was like 70s here. Oh, nice. I have to turn my AC off to record because otherwise there's too much background noise. So I'm sitting here <laughs> fucking sweating, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah. So let's get Evan back into the air conditioning. <laughs> um, we would like to thank you all for listening. Um, if you have any thoughts on this, uh, because I know the Afghan war has been quite controversial, um, send us an email, podcast at adequatelyinformed.com. Um, we are willing to engage with good faith discussion about this um, because... While we definitely have views on it, we know we don't know everything, and it's a very, 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 very complex situation. So Yeah. And if um, you liked what you heard, recommend us to your friends. We are yeah. we, we love people listening. We love feeling validated. We love to have our voices ringing in your ears. We love going on ego trips. Oh um, yeah. Oh, it's the greatest. Oh my gosh, my ego, it's great. Always wear a mask um, on your ego trips. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, we like, and also always thanking Anthony Hish for the music. Oh, but anyway, Anthony Hish, beautiful music. Ah, uh, beautiful beats. They're tasty. Yeah. So, my name's Show Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed.